Craig Hoffman. Oh, baby. We have a name. We have a website. We have two great guests. And we have an NFL draft that was super weird. Uh, The Hoffman Show, as it will be called. And as of early next week, you can find this very podcast at hoffmanshow.com. The domain has been purchased, putting the finishing touches on the website. I am super excited uh, because I feel like a real person again. And that's sweet. So welcome in to The Hoffman Show. Uh, Damon Mendelar, CBS Sports Radio. In 10 minutes, Anthony Galizia of the Washington Times talking about the Redskins pick of Josh Doxson in a little bit. Uh, Also get to why when we think of steroids, we think of them wrong. That coming up at the end of the Hoffman show. But we start last night with just a weird, super duper weird NFL draft. Uh, Laramie Tunsil at the center of the weirdness. The offensive tackle from Mississippi. We'll see how long Mississippi wants to associate themselves with Laramie Tunsil after last night. Best player on Mel Kuyper's board. Goes 13. And it's not just like he was at a position that... It's not like he was a dominant guard or a dominant center. And he was just so good that Mel had to put him one. No, this is a left tackle. Left tackles go number one overall. That's an important position. That's the anchor of your offensive line. Protecting your quarterback's blind side most of the time, as long as they're right-handed. If they're left-handed, they'd be facing the other way. Laramie Tunsil falls to 13 because minutes before the draft, a video is posted to his Twitter account of him in a gas mask smoking from a bong. Whoa. That's that's odd. Oh, he's been hacked. Alrighty. So then, as Tunsil is picked at 13 and he's talking to Susie Culber from ESPN, there's pictures that show up on his Instagram account. Text message screenshots. Him and an Ole Miss coach setting up money exchanges. Well, that's not a good look. NCAA, as of this morning, investigating Ole Miss who, by the way, back in January, was already served a notice of allegations. They're in deep bleep. There's your old misanalysis. They're in deep trouble. So then Laramie Tunsil goes to the podium and is asked about it, and he admits to giving money to a coach, says his stuff was hacked, the video was old. Uh, Miami, when asked about it, says, yeah, we knew the video was old, and we like the player, we like the kid. And he's ours, yay. Good answer. Because Laramie Tunzel is a good football player. But, as we've seen time and again in the NFL draft and in the NFL, being a good physical specimen is not enough. You have to know how to be a professional. You have to know how to manage a lot of different stuff. Being a pro athlete is hard. Everything you do is in the public spotlight. Even if you're a nobody, if you do something dumb, it's going to make the news. You could be the 50, hell, you could be the 56th guy on the roster, which makes you a practice squad player because there's only 53. And if you get a DUI, that's in the news. And it probably gets you cut. And not that it's not hard not to go get a DUI, but that kind of scrutiny is different than your run-of-the-mill job. And if you're one of the best players... Everything you do is under scrutiny. And if you're a standout left tackle, which Laramie Tunzel hopes to be, he's going to have to learn how to deal with this stuff. And there's a lot of stuff around Laramie Tunzel. I think what's interesting is figuring out what of that stuff matters. You start with the weed. The gas mask, the bong. Weed, not a big deal. Because, frankly... Most of the players that got drafted last night probably have smoked weed at some point in their lives or continue to smoke weed and just make sure they don't do it around drug tests. And and the joke in the NFL is that tests for marijuana, because they test at very specific times, which players know it's coming, it's not really a drug test, it's an intelligence test. If you can't stop smoking weed when you know you're going to get tested, you're just you either A, don't care enough about your job, 
or B, are just a dummy. That's what it is. So, with Laramie Tunsil, the Dolphins obviously think, eh, if he is smoking weed, he's not dumb enough to do it where he's going to get caught. Uh, And obviously now, I think he knows, if I'm going to smoke weed, let's not do it on video. And if you do do it because you're high and you think it's funny, when you come back down to earth, delete the video. Make sure all remnants of it is gone forever. Come on, guy. It's me smacking my forehead on Laramie Tunsil's behalf. Obviously, this seems like some kind of iCloud hack situation where not only got into Laramie Tunsil's photos, but got into his passwords and was able to get the Instagram password as well. And off he went uh, for the screenshots. Now, a kid taking money. Again, not that big of a deal. Because, again, most kids that got drafted last night, they got paid by someone. Eh, if you think college athletics are pure, uh, it's because you live in a blissful world of not reality. That's not a big concern for me and Larry Tunzel. What is a concern is the fact that somebody is trying to extort him. Somebody's clearly got something on Larry Tunzel, and whether it is, actually I should say, and it might not even be the guy who we all think it is, or many think it is, that's the obvious guy. There might be multiple people out to get Larry Tunzel. Uh, the obvious guy is his stepfather, whom he's had problems with, including a domestic dispute, which either, if you believe Tunsil, started after his stepfather put his hands on his mother and Tunsil got involved, in which case that is admirable uh, because he's protecting his mom from domestic abuse. And uh, if you believe the stepfather, it's because Laramie Tunsil was having improper contact with agents and that started an argument which then ended in them punching each other. So, clearly, issues and family issues, like, that's, I'm not going to downside, or, you know, push that away. But, like, the reality is it's, again, something to deal with. And for a lot of athletes who deal with hangers-on and deal with bad people who they trusted before, um, that is a concern. But it's more so a concern for the kid or the player than it is the team. Um, if someone is trying to get in Larry Tunsil's, Laramie Tunsil's pockets, that's not really a Dolphins problem so long as it doesn't affect his mindset and his ability to prepare and his ability to show up on Sundays. So that's not as big of a concern. But if there's someone out there trying to extort Laramie Tunzel, that's something a team has to concern. But it's also something a team can help with. NFL security is legit. Like NFL security, for those that don't know, is made up largely of former law enforcement, some cops, some FBI. So... They should be able to help Laramie Tunzel out here, and hopefully that's not a problem moving forward. And who knows? It may have been some dumb kid who just thought it'd be funny to hack and screw with Laramie Tunzel, or it could be something more sinister. Um, on the drug front, there is a concern. Well, the stigma of weed, I don't care, and neither do the Dolphins probably. If he winds up missing time, a la Randy Gregory of the Cowboys last year, then that all of a sudden becomes a problem. Um, Laramie Tunzel is probably going to be put in phase one of the NFL's drug program. I don't think people know is that it takes multiple drug tests to actually miss games in the NFL because there are different stages of the drug program. And now all of a sudden, Laramie Tunzel is probably, with this video, gotten himself out of some of the early stages where he could screw up once. Now all of a sudden, if he smokes weed and gets caught, four-game suspension. Boom. And... With Tunzel, it's kind of the fact that there's always something. You know, there's been injury problems. There's been suspensions for impermissible benefits. He was with Robert Kimdichie when Kimdichie uh, fell out of the window in the hotel uh, before the Peach Bowl last year. Like, there's just been a lot of stuff. And while he may be able to explain a lot of it away, and a lot of it may be legitimate, it gets to a point where you go, man, are we going to have to deal with this? And as a team, how much in terms of resources you have to invest, not just financially, but human resources you have to invest in a player, certainly affects his value. So if you think you have the system set up and you think he's definitively better than Jack Conklin and uh, Ronnie Stanley, the other two offensive tackles that wind up going before him, then teams made a mistake on passing on him. If you're going, we don't want to invest that much into him, and we think Stanley and Conklin are just fine as players, 
I totally get passing on it. Obviously, uh, the Ravens decided not worth it, um, and the Dolphins decided worth it. So it's just an odd situation. But sorting through what does matter and what doesn't matter, uh, it's it's a lot more than public relations. Yeah, the Dolphins are going to have to deal with. I saw one column in the, in the Miami Herald this morning that was very high horsey and oh this actually was kind of hysterical and sad it's a terrible column um all due respect to i believe it was armando selguero who wrote it one of the bullet points summarizing at the top of the column is hey uh if this works out the dolphins will be a genius and if this doesn't work out the dolphins have a lot of questions to answer and people will get fired good insight good job good effort that originated in Miami. Good job, good effort. Um, it's like, duh. But, I mean, I guess to Almondo Salguero's credit, like, he's right. Uh, this this is a pick that could turn a regime uh, either into geniuses or not. Um, they have to look at the culture and what they're doing down there. There's a lot of factors that go into this. Uh, the public relations is one. But in the end, if they're right and the evaluation of the player is that Leonard Tunsil is a freaking awesome left tackle, like Dolphins come out winning here. And they do it for less resources than Baltimore would have had to invest uh, in terms of dollars up at the sixth pick when they go ahead and take Ronnie Stanley instead. Craig Hoffman. David Mendelara hosts nights on CBS Sports Radio, the DA show. It's on a spaceship. It is grand, 6 to 10. There, also the radio.com app if you don't know your local affiliate. Uh, of course, I'm sure, DA, there's, there's somewhere on the interwebs people can find their local affiliate. Yes, I would think if you went to CBSSportsRadio.com and clicked on affiliates or stations, you'd probably find it. But you're right, it is grand. And it's grand to talk to you today, Hoff. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Uh, my buddy, my pal, DA, as he is known. Uh, although some, some I've heard, don't like when people use your initials. Uh, but that's a different story for different, different story, time. whole different show. Um, so the 2016 NFL draft gasp mask bongs and extortion uh and weird injury things that was the theme of the night I guess we'll start with Laramie Tunzel um I you would have been doing your show the back half of your show is that is all unfolding um I was playing pickup basketball so I, I at some point picked up my phone and went he went 13 what what was your your view as all of that unfolded we actually were off the air because we ceded to Gio and Jones, our morning show on CBS Sports Radio, who were doing a a draft show at 8 o'clock. So I was actually uh, on my way home and listening to the picks and kind of following along. And when he dropped past three, okay, interesting, four, interesting, five, interesting. But we had seen that gas mask video just before the, the, um, the draft had started. So at that point, you kind of didn't know how much of an effect it would have. Ultimately, we see how much of an effect that it had. But the whole thing was just such a a theater of the absurd, from the video to where he dropped, to then his Instagram being hacked, to then him admitting in a podium postgame that he had taken money from Ole Miss coaches, to then him being kind of whisked off the stage, no more questions, to the Deion Sanders interview, was it your stepdad? I mean, I... It rarely can you say, I've never seen that before in today's day and age, but we've never seen that before. No, no. What? See, I thought Deadspin had an interesting piece this morning where they basically said, like, if you passed on him because of marijuana, you're dope uh, as a team because it's 2016 and marijuana it doesn't have the stigma anymore. And it seems like, uh, to use their word, the NFL is a very retrograde view of marijuana. To me, if I'm a team, I am concerned about the marijuana because even though the view might be retrograde, the suspension's not. That The four games would still be the four games if he gets in trouble with that again. And he's probably going to be put in stage one of the NFL's drug program uh, because of this video. And also, the extortion thing bothers me a bit too um what what part of this if you're a team bothers you you know the bong thing itself is kind of utterly ridiculous to get too worked up over because what percentage of the guys that were selected last night do we know have taken bong hits in college i mean i probably a high percentage very high percentage so that whole thing was weird because 
My guess is also that NFL executives, even if they even if they had you in a room and asked, have you ever smoked marijuana out of a gas mask bong? And you said yes, they still would have taken you. So that that whole thing was bizarre. I guess it was the perception of it. What I don't have a problem with when it comes to passing on Larry Tunsil is all of the stuff that seems to surround him. I mean, you know, it's very obvious whatever happened between him and his stepfather is uh, it's murky and it's combative. And there's a weird family dynamic right there where maybe his stepdad hit his mom. But at some point there was an altercation and Laramie stepped in and that whole thing is bizarre. And you do have to always wonder about how kids can survive if they're in the middle of totally broken homes with bizarre situations. So that part I get. But if this is just about weed, I just I can't get too worked up. I don't care how you're smoking your weed, whether it's a gas mask bong or not, if that ends up being the reason that, uh, that a team passes on you. Yeah, and so in the end, just bare bones question: Would you have taken him if you're in, you know, if you're Ozzie Newsom with the Ravens at six, and you decide to take Ronnie Stanley instead? If you're in that position, would you have taken Laramie Tunsil? Well, I think it comes down to this: If you had Laramie Tunsil graded high, and all of the ba- all of the background stuff that you had known on him um, wasn't of consequence to you, then yes, that then the gas mask video shouldn't the gas mask video should not have altered anybody's decision. If you had a decision on him, then you would have had to go back to his family stuff and say, okay, is this going to pop up? Is this going to worry us? Is this going to drag him down? And I don't know the extent of that, but I would say this. Wherever I graded him going into last night's draft, I would have not passed on him because that video surfaced. I think that's a really fair and accurately correct answer. Um, The other big story of the night in terms of guys falling uh, would be injury-related, and that's Miles Jack, UCLA linebacker. Um, I heard Lewis Riddick from ESPN, amongst others, say they thought, based on tape, he's the best player in the draft. Are you surprised that he didn't? I mean, I, we knew he was going to fall probably outside the top ten, but he's he's still available after day one. How surprising is that to you? Yeah, it's really surprising because I thought that he was going to be a top ten pick despite um, the knee injury, and we actually had Miles on the show last week. And, uh, you know, the guy was happy-go-lucky, and he seemed – um, very positive, very confident he was going to get drafted high. He was very open about his injury uh, and was talking about how he was playing pickup hoops and he was stretching it out and he was feeling really good and he was excited to play. And then on the eve of the draft, we had that news that he felt like he could have microfracture. And I just feel like that frightened everybody. I mean, it, it just it didn't seem right that Miles Jack could go from a top 10 pick projected to in one day fall out of the first round. And it just, it must have been that so many executives got really scared when he started talking about microfracture. And, I mean, that, that is terrifying. We've seen so many players' uh, careers ended. Steve Smith, the wide receiver for the Giants, was having a really good career. Microfracture, and that was it. He was out of the league in, I think, five years, and two years after that injury. And then how many basketball players have suffered that? So, I think like that was just the atomic bomb for him, and uh, and I am surprised that it, it cost him an entire round, but I don't think he'll get farther than maybe top of the second round, because now on day two, you're going to see a few more risks being taken, I think. Yeah, you, you know, it's a different risk financially. You're not investing nearly as much, um, and also the, the first contract is shorter, which I think there is something to be said about just, hey, can we get him through the first contract? And then, you know, your financial commitment ends. Obviously, at the top of the first round, you're looking for a guy that you're going to have around for a decade if you can find him. Um, but I don't know. The, the microfracture thing is weird, too. I remember when I was the, the back end of my time in Dallas, um, the Chandler Parsons stuff was floating around. And the Mavericks and Parsons were doing everything to not have it come out that he had had microfracture. Not so much because the surgery can be devastating, but because it's, I mean, medical technology is advanced. It's not as risky or as sure of a thing that, okay, microfracture career over or career severely altered as it used to be. And, but the perception is still that. So they just didn't want it out that he had it because they felt comfortable he was going to make a full recovery. And so I just, I wonder 
what is going on. I think, to me, the scariest thing that Miles Jack said was not microfracture, but degenerative. Where, like, this is going to be a problem. Not not something that, hey, this may pop up, I can get it fixed with surgery, and then I'll be good. It's like, no, this is probably going to be a problem, and it's just a ticking time bomb. Like, that would scare me as a team. But if I can get three to four years of awesome play, especially if I'm a team at the back end of the first round who's good, I would have taken him. Yeah, it's a good point. Degenerative is the thing that really scares everybody off. And also, part of that quote was, you know, who knows how long anybody lasts in this, um, you know, uh, NFL. I think he said something like the average career is three years. Which you don't want him saying, but it's true. Exactly right. If if, uh, an executive says it, it's fact. When a guy with uh, a bum knee says it, it makes it sound like he's only counting on having a three- or four-year career, and that's about it. I think he's going to get taken to the top of the second round. I think at this point in time, everybody has their first-round draft pick out of the way. Uh, I think he ends up getting taken the second, uh, the, the second round of the top ten and maybe even the top five. I think he's off the board within the first ten picks. Uh, when you look at the entirety of the first round, is there something that stands out as the biggest mistake to you that a team made? I didn't like the Cowboys getting Ezekiel Elliott because history tells us that when you draft a kid that high at running back position, it's almost never going to pay dividends. I wrote a piece about this for CBS Sports today, and going back over the top five picks of the NFL draft, if you selected a running back in the top five picks over the last 20, let's start with the last 15 years. Here's your top five picks at running backs. Trent Richardson, Darren McFadden, Reggie Bush, Ronnie Brown, Cedric Benson, Cadillac Williams, Curtis Enos, and Kajana Carter. Okay? Disaster. Now, you can also include before that, Going back 20 years, Jamal Lewis, Edrin, James, Ladanian, Tomlinson, and LT, one of the greats of all time, Edge could be a Hall of Famer. So there are some hits there. But the problem is that if you draft a running back that high, the odds are way better he's a total bust than he is a star because all those guys that ended up being studs were more than 15 years ago. The game has changed. I just don't like allocating that high of a draft pick to a place that's become a committee position and I really don't like uh, the idea that the Cowboys uh, have all of these needs defensively and they're going to spend it on a running back. I just never, unless this guy, unless you're drafting a kid that is going to be uh, Adrian Peterson, then you don't. But even Adrian Peterson was the number seven pick in the draft. I just don't believe in taking a kid that high. And I don't think Elliott is such a generational talent that it, that it deserved that. So I'll play devil's advocate, not because I'm playing devil's advocate, because I legitimately disagree. You look at two years ago when they won the division, the best thing that happened for that defense was DeMarco Murray, them staying off the field. And I saw reports that Rod Marinelli, the Cowboys defensive coordinator, was one of the people pushing to take Ezekiel Elliott because he knew what that would mean for his defense. He's a three-down back. He's super rare as a talent. Um, I've heard multiple scouts say that uh, he's the best blocking back they've ever evaluated. He can catch a ball out of the backfield. Like he's, he's not your typical running back anymore because he's actually a three-down player. So presented with that, you still go, yeah, but there hasn't been any in the last 15 years, and you probably could have said that some of these guys coming out were awesome. Or does that at least make you go, well, maybe he could be the exception? Well, I think that Ezekiel Elliott could be a very good running back in this league. Um, and there's no doubt that he is. He does have a little bit of everything that, that is totally enticing. The issue is, you just mentioned DeMarco Murray. You don't have to draft DeMarco Murray in the top five picks of the draft. You can find DeMarco Murray many other places. And I just think that w- look at the last decade of the NFL in terms of Super Bowl winners. Only one team has selected a running back in the first round and won a championship with them. And that was the Steelers taking Rashard Mendenhall, who was the fourth running back taken in that draft. The whole point is the NFL has evolved so far away from the one dynamic running back that does everything for you that you just don't need to shop at such an expensive store to get that guy because you don't need that guy. Teams don't use that guy. That guy almost never equates into a championship. Now, the Vikings were a game away from the Super Bowl in 08 with Adrian Peterson or 09 when, when Brett Favre threw the interception at the Superdome. So it's not like guys haven't come close, and Marshawn Lynch has been a bell cow, but he wasn't selected by the Seahawks. The whole issue is when you go into the top five, top ten, even the first round – You've got positions that are really highly coveted, highly sought after positions that you've got to get those guys, and you just don't need to get running backs at that cost.
No, I, I hear you. And the value play, I totally agree with. It's just, I think Elliot's really good. And so it might work out, but we'll see. That's the fun part is we can spitball all this stuff and none of us know. Um, speaking of spitballing on things that we don't know, is there a pick that as of now, at the very least, that you love? I really like Shaq Lawson going to the Buffalo Bills. And I'm not high on, on Rex Ryan's defensive genius wizardry anymore after what we saw last year. But I thought Shaq Lawson coming out of Clemson did everything and had everything from a defensive pass rushing situation. And that's one of those positions I don't mind allocating a really high draft pick to if you feel like you've got your guy. And I just don't see a lot of weaknesses in his game. Um, I know that uh, there's got that, that shoulder question is probably what really forced him to slip. But I love Shaq Lawson coming into the draft. Um, I loved him um, you know, uh, last year at Clemson. Um, and I just feel like he is slated to do big things, especially in the defense that lost Mario Williams, and you know they want to get after the passer. I think he's going to end up being a great fit in Buffalo. Um, all right, last thing for you, kind of a macro question um, that touches on the, the theme, the motif, if you will, that we just touched on of nice. judging judging this. Yeah, my English teachers are so proud um, of judging the draft now. Uh, when we don't know anything and forget playing a game, no, but none of these guys have had rookie mini camp yet. But I do think there is, and it actually goes to what you said about Ezekiel Elliott. I think there is a way to judge um, this draft or any draft day of, and that that's who got good value. Um, and, and the example I always use, going back just a couple of years, is Travis Frederick with the Cowboys. Turns out he's a really good football player, uh, All Pro, um, and which. I mean, he's he's awesome. He's been an anchor for their offensive line, which has been one of the best in football. But they drafted him at the 30th pick, and he was a third-rounder in many's eyes. So even though it worked out, you go, you probably could have gotten a better player uh, or another good player in the first round and waited till the second round at the very least to draft Frederick. So it's not a great pick, even though he's turned out well. When it comes to judging the draft, what evaluations do you think are legitimate to make or not the day after? Yeah, I think where you get a guy um, in terms of where those types of guys usually slot is a totally fair thing to do, right? Because if, I, if I'm going to criticize the Cowboys for taking a, a franchise running back that high, uh, then the flip side is if you get uh, a standout pass rusher that a lot of teams really liked and you got him down in the 20s or something, you've got to be able to, to grade that higher or at least compliment that. So... I'm, I'm okay doing that. The one thing I totally dislike is waking up today and seeing hard grades, including pluses and minuses, on one draft pick. I mean, it's, it's utterly absurd. We, you know, it's, it's, I'm sure in the future we will have generations going, wait a second, they graded draft picks the day <laughs> after they were, they were drafted? That's in, it's like predicting whether your summer of 2038 is going to be really fun or not. You know, it's like it's like predicting whether Christmas in three years you're going to get the toy that you wanted. Like, there's absolutely no way to know. To, to hit a pick on the head with a plus-minus grade is like throwing a rock into a lake and guessing whether it hit the trout in the head or not. There's no way to be able to figure that out. So it's just it's a cavalcade of comedy when I see grades come out the next day. But where guys went and general ideas, like I totally understand why John Elway did what he did yesterday. He loses Brock Osweiler in a bidding war that cost $72 million for the Houston Texans, 31 guaranteed. And he got Paxton Lynch on a $9 million total rookie contract. Well, hey, you got a guy for $60 million less, and he only has seven fewer starts than Brock Osweiler in his NFL career. Totally get it for a third-round pick that you traded away to move up. Those things I can totally get down with grading out. Specifically, a player at like C minus because he went at fourteen, you know, instead of twenty. Uh, I can't get on board with it. Yeah, um, although I do have big plans for the summer of twenty thirty eight. Nice. Uh, I'll 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 just leave the trout fishing with a rock alone. Um, da, you can follow him on Twitter at da on CBS. Uh, read the piece that he wrote. You said for CBSSports.com is where that is. People to find it. 
Uh, yeah, I'll tweet it out, put it on Facebook as well, but they can uh, find that DA on CBS.com is where they can find all that. Very nice. And are you back on tonight or more drafting on CBS Sports Radio tonight? Uh, I'm sure we got some type of draft coverage. I'm in for Gottlieb today, so I'll be on 3 until 6 in the afternoon. All right, there you go. You can also watch that on CBS Sports Network if you'd like to see DA, which is just a lovely sight. Thank you, my friend. You got it, man. Thanks, off. Craig Hoffman. Anthony Galizia covers the Redskins as the Redskins beat writer for the Washington Times. A good friend. Lots of good times last year in the media room. Always good to catch up on all things, but we will stick uh, for the people's entertainment here to the Redskins and their draft pick last night and how that affects uh, a lot, potentially a lot of things. There could be some pretty significant trickle down. Uh, but, Anthony, let's just start very, very basic. When you hear, whether you heard it from the commissioner or somebody told you, tipped you off a little bit before the pick, uh, when you heard that it's Josh Doxson, the wide receiver out of TCU, your thoughts are what? Yeah, everybody was surprised. Uh, you know, all of us sitting in the media room uh, watching the draft, that's how we cover it. Uh, you know, from Redskins Park, uh, we were all surprised. We had all believed that that the Redskins would would address you know the defensive line, maybe a safety, maybe a center, even. Uh, and, and that was a, you know we all thought would have been the plan for a while. But the Redskins gained some flexibility when they signed Josh Norman. That gave them the ability to be creative with their pick and address a position that is a need for them and that will be a need for them eventually. Maybe not a need, maybe not their highest need right now. And what was interesting about the pick is that, you know, afterwards Jay Gruden said that the Redskins went the best available. And that's the sense that, you know, there were a few picks before that, that possibly could have been in the Redskins. Brian Kelly went a few picks before at 18 to the Colts. Uh, Carl Joseph went even a few picks before that. So, so the Redskins could have had their eye on some of those guys, but at the end of the day, they felt that that going the best available was going to be Josh Doxson, and you know they were able to weasel a six-round draft pick out of it with the Texans by trading down a spot, and then they felt comfortable that Doxson was was the best receiver available, the best player available, uh, and somebody, you know, it was a surprising pick, but Doxson's a great player, uh, had a great career at TCU, got great hands. A great ability to go up and get the ball, and then that's the inner valuable have. Yeah, no doubt. I texted with uh, with someone on the offensive staff last night and said, you know, plainly, what do you like about him? He goes, great body control, great hands, makes contested catches, and the thing that I think is rare for a rookie um, or a guy coming out of college to be a rookie, uh, he says he's a very polished route runner. Um, so they're really excited about what he brings. The question is, where does he fit in on this roster? Um, they've obviously got Deshaun Jackson, Pierre Garcon, Jamison Crowder as their one, two, three. But does this mean, as Jackson and Garcon have massive cap hits pending, uh, that one of those two isn't there? Probably Garcon would be the more direct replacement for a guy like Doxon. But but does it mean, do you think, that one of those two could potentially not be on the roster when training camp opens? Yeah, you know, it's hard to tell right now. I don't. It's a situation where I don't think it necessarily means so strongly that by getting Josh Doxson, you're going to get rid of, of Pierre Garçon or, or Deshaun Jackson. I mean, by doing that, you're saving up the cap space, but you're, you're putting a lot on a rookie. Um, I mean, if you're going to cut, I mean, Pierre Garçon is one of the more sure-handed guys around in the sense that, you know, he can always get your first down. I mean, he's so... He's so smart around the markers. He's tough. He goes to the areas that not a lot of people on on teams like to go to. Uh, Deshaun Jackson and only you know half a season last year was still electric for them. Uh, so it's going to be tough. I mean, I don't think that you just cut one of them and have Josh Doxson as as a fill in. Like I said, it's putting a lot on a rookie. I think what this does do is position them really well. Uh, for a year in, in 2017 when both of those guys are going to be free agents. So whether you retain one or retain both or retain either of them, uh, you have Josh Doxson and it lets him get ready. Uh, it lets him adjust. It gives him a full year. Uh, for wide receivers, it's a tough transition to the NFL. Uh, the cornerbacks are much better. The defense overall, uh, the speed of the game. Some guys can make that transition, and while Josh Doxson very well could make that transition in his first year, uh, I think it's 
it's valuable to be able to not have to rush him onto the field. And, and that's thinking long-term. Uh, I know fans don't necessarily love that mindset, uh, thinking, you know, hey, this is a really great pick two years from now. But that's how you build good teams, and that's what Scott McLuhan talks about when he talks about building within the draft. Um, what's his ceiling, what, both what you think of it and what you've been able to gather of them thinking of it? Is he ultimately a, a really, really, really good number two, or can he be a number one receiver that can do all of the special things that, I mean, obviously he can't run like Deshaun, but with his vertical and his size and all that, um, you know, take the top off a of defense and, and be a complete receiver uh, more in the mold of like what an Andre Johnson was for a long time. Um, that kind of number one receiver, even if he's not Johnson's hall of fame level, but ca- basically the question is, can he be a number one receiver eventually, or is he the number two they hope for the next 10 years? No, I, th- I think he can be that guy. Uh, I don't think you take a guy that high unless you expect for him to play a primary role uh, in the future. One of the things last night that stood out to me in describing him, uh, Jay Gruden immediately pointed to, uh, you know, immediately pointed to AJ Green. So, I mean, that's a guy that that Jay was around in Cincinnati, and that he saw some of that same ability. Uh, in Josh Dawson, I'm sure, uh, when he saw him on film and said that he met with him briefly at the Combine. Uh, so, so that's, a, you know, I do think you, you take the guy that high, I do think you have every intention that, that eventually he's, he's going to play so get to get time for you. When you look at what the Redskins have on tap today, day two of the draft, um, I mean, do you think they could be in play? I, I, I think one of the guys that – um, a lot of people thought they might take as Reggie Raglan, the, uh, the linebacker of Alabama. They also have the two defensive tackles from Alabama that are still on the board that a lot of people projected them to take. So are they a candidate to possibly move up and snag one of those guys if they continue to fall? Like how far would they have to fall for the Redskins to move up? And, and what else do you think they're looking at today in day two? Yeah, you know, it's tough. Um, it's really tough to tell. I don't know if, uh, you know, moving up is, something that would require the Redskins to give up a draft pick, and I don't think that's what they like to do. Uh, Scott McLuhan has talked so much about how he wants to have 10 to 12 draft picks, uh, and you know he wants to acquire those picks through the draft. So trading up to get one of those guys would require uh, you know, getting rid of a, a draft pick most likely. I mean, even just look at yesterday, they were clearly shopping around to try and trade down. And the best they got was one spot that they picked up a six-round pick in the process, and you think that that's not that big of a deal. But that just goes to show how willing Scott McLuhan and, and the Redskins are to uh, are to acquiring those picks. Um, I certainly think defense is on the table today. Uh, they have that pick in the second round and another third round. Uh, I think today, assuming that you know the Redskins stay with just their two picks, I think they go defensive line and, and perhaps a center. Uh, but it, it, if they don't, uh, if they get more picks, there's obviously, you know, could be more coming, perhaps safety, uh, all areas that, that they still need to address and that they will address today and tomorrow. Um, kind of circling around and then bringing this all together uh, with the Redskins cap space, you know, as I, we kind of touched on a little bit with the Garcon and Jackson talk, um, typically you want about $5 million to sign your draft picks. The Redskins are slightly under that. Um, obviously, Josh Norman ate a ton of their cap space. But at this point, do they really need to make any moves to free cap space? Because what would they spend it on? Or is it just a matter of maybe freeing a little bit to sign some draft picks and, you know, cutting a guy like Andre Roberts, who they probably are going to cut uh, is all they really need to do like are is there a need to make a bigger move to shed cap space to be able to either sign someone or just to you know bring in the guys they have or cut new deals for some of the guys they have like a jordan reed yeah you know they're surprisingly not going to be too bad um the deal with norman only took eight million on the cap this year uh which is huge uh which Kudos to Eric Schaefer and them for being able to figure that out and get to gear uh, for that little, you know, to, to, to make the numbers work. So, you know, I mean, getting $20 million signing bonus and base salary, but it's only counting as eight against the cap. Uh, obviously, cutting Andre Roberts, a lot of people, and 
myself included, believe that, you know, that he'll be gone, but that won't happen until June 1st. Um, you know, the Redskins can be a little bit over the cap right now, uh, you know, once they sign their draft picks. So, you know, they only include the top 51, and I believe if you only include the top 51, they're actually still under the cap uh, just by a little bit. I haven't looked at the numbers. Uh, you know, I, I was figuring out last night with, with Doxon, and then you're, you're taking away someone from the top 51 and replacing him. So it's like, um, I think it's, you know, $1.8 million that Doxon's going to get this year. Doesn't necessarily count full against the cap. But I do think, you know, as the year gets closer, you want to free up some space. Uh, you look at how many guys the Redskins had to bring in last year. Uh, you never know when injuries are going to happen. You have to pay your practice squad players as well. I think, you you know, if you can go into the season with, you know, 5 to $6 million available, that's, uh, you know, that, that's at least a start. Uh, obviously, some teams will have much, much more than that. I'd be curious to go back and look and see what the Redskins went into the season with last year. Uh, but, you know, you're going to have to, you know, whether you have to sign uh, Pierre Thomas, Alex Smith, Will Blackman, uh, you know, all those moves that the Redskins had to make last year, hopefully they don't have to make them again this year because that's people are hurt. But that's, uh, you know, that's what they'll have to, what they'll have to figure possibly needing maybe more, maybe less. Yeah, that's such a good point. Um, that's probably not brought up enough. The flexibility to make moves in season. Uh, the best general managers, it's not just about having you know the, the roster of, of players kind of in that drawer of, okay, if we need someone at this position, we know who we want. But having the money to actually get it done uh, is a great point. And the Redskins have a couple of options too. Uh, Andre Roberts, Perry Riley uh, could be a cap casualty. There, there are definitely options for them before you even get to guys like Garcon and Jackson who have huge cap hits but are still super productive players in starting roles uh you can follow anthony galizia on twitter at anthony galizia the last name is g-u-l-i-z-i-a uh you should do that and you should read his stuff in the washington times uh, always appreciate you bud and hopefully i'll see you soon yeah of course thanks for having me on. craig hoffman in seven minutes the magic of the words in perpetuity Thanks to DA, thanks to Galizia for joining me here on the Hoffman Show. Of course, always your feedback welcome at Craig Hoffman on Twitter, C-R-A-I-G-H-O-F-F-M-A-N. Before the magical words in perpetuity and why we remember them today, a word on another weird story out of Miami, and that is one of the smallest men in baseball being suspended for performance-enhancing drugs. D. Gordon, uh, who's... I believe was the NL batting champion last year, hit 340-something. He's a speed demon, uh, great, great player for the Miami Marlins, gets suspended for PEDs. And predictably, he says, I took something that I didn't mean to. It was an accident. Uh, I take full responsibility for my actions because that's the play when you get caught. And the reason it's the play, to me, is different than the reason it's the play to most people. Because I'm not as cynical as a lot of people. I think a lot of people look at that and go, yeah, okay, you're just saying that. You've tried to get away with something. And are there times that's true? Absolutely. But we think of steroids through the Mark McGuire prism, right? The Barry Bonds prism. Anabolic steroids that get you massive. Your melon grows. Your grapes shrink. Right? That's what we think of steroids. But performance-enhancing drugs go way beyond that. There are a lot of different kinds um, that, that do a lot of different things. It's not just about building muscle. In fact, most steroid users, or performance-enhancing drug users, are using them in ways that, honestly, make a lot of sense. And that, oh, I don't really understand why they aren't legal. They use it for recovery. They use it so their body is in peak condition more often. And in fact, the the effect that the PEDs have on the players and thus the effect they would have on the record book wouldn't be because you can all of a sudden smash a baseball 500 feet. It's because instead of playing 140 games, you're able to play 162. That's the effect that it has on the record book. It's not about how far you can hit the ball. It's how often you're able to hit the ball because your body's just sharper. 
The other thing to remember, though, about PEDs is that it actually is not as easy as you would think to stay clean. The list of banned substances for all sports is extensive. And these guys take a lot of supplements because, and legal supplements, you know, your protein powders, your pre-workouts, all those kinds of things, because without them, your body be a mess. Like the, the advances in medical science, the advances in sports nutrition are so far beyond what they were even 10 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, nevertheless, 30, 40 years ago. And there's all these different things that help athletes stay in peak condition and help their bodies recover and do so legally. But if you take one wrong supplement, a supplement that you or I could buy at GNC or Vitamin Shop or wherever you buy your your vitamins and your proteins and whatever, um, that we could buy and take and it's perfectly fine, might contain a trace of something that sometimes isn't even about what's in it as it would be a masking agent for something else. That's what triggers the test. Sometimes PED tests aren't actually for PEDs. Positive PED tests aren't for PEDs. They're for masking agents because they think that you're hiding something. That's how Sudafed, yes, Sudafed, forget going to Vitamin Shop or GNC, uh, let's go to CVS or Rite Aid, and get over-the-counter Sudafed because our sinuses are messed up. NFL players can't do that. There's something in Sudafed that is similar to a masking agent or could even maybe even be used as a masking agent. And so it's on the NFL's banned substances list. So if you are a Major League Baseball player like D. Gordon and you switch up your supplement routine and you are not uber careful, which I'm not, and this is why... The right play is, and at times the honest play is to say, I take responsibility for my actions. Like You've got to be super careful. But to be cynical and sinister about this and think that D. Gordon's out here trying to cheat, I don't, I believe him if he says he screwed up on accident because, believe it or not, it's not that hard to do. And I know we want to think that these guys are just trying to cheat and we know that we want to think it's sinister, but the reality is, it's not that hard to do something on accident that winds up triggering a positive test. And I also, much like the weed thing that we talked about at Laramie Tunzel, like I don't really understand some of the stigma and some of the the downsides. Anabolic steroids that cause hell on your body and throw hormones all out of whack and can cause all kinds of problems. Yeah, I understand why those are illegal. But something, and this is the argument with HGH and why there's a lot of research going into HGH. If something can help an athlete's body without any long-term repercussions, stay in better condition, can help recovery, why are we against that? That doesn't make sense to me, and quite frankly, it never will. Now for the words in perpetuity. Uh, They became famous and are famous in legal circles because it's a heck of a way to get a settlement when you have an ongoing payment such as NBA TV rights. The One of the owners of the St. Louis Spirits of the ABA died yesterday. He was 83 years old. His name is Ozzie Silna. Ozzie and his brother were the two owners of the St. Louis Spirits when the Spirits and the ABA merged with the NBA, and the Spirits were the one team that got left out. One team folded, uh, the Kentucky Colonials took a $3.3 million payment, and they went away. But the the St. Louis Spirits and the Silnas said, yo, like we're getting shut out here, while the four of the other teams uh, from the ABA, the four remaining teams, got merged into the NBA. So they said, hey, how about we cut a deal? How about we get a very small percentage of the NBA's TV money in perpetuity? The NBA, at the time, not this is the early 70s, this is pre-Magic Bird, finals on tape delay period of the NBA, said, yeah, we'll do that. Funny story. NBA TV rights are now in the billions and have been for a while. Billions with a B and an S at the end, as in multiple billions. So even a fraction of a percentage winds up being 
millions of dollars annually to a team that hasn't existed since the mid-70s. The Silnas made over $300 million off of this, and then a couple of years ago settled with the NBA so that in perpetuity would actually end for a lump sum of $500 million. So you've got nearly $800 million that the Silnas made off of the NBA's TV deals without owning a team. It's And the story of the, the St. Louis Spirits beyond that is phenomenal. ESPN captured it a couple of years ago in a 30 for 30. It's probably on Netflix. Most of them are. I'm sure you can find it on the interwebs somewhere. Um, and I'm sure with Ozzy Silna's death, death that ESPN will probably re-air that 30 for 30 a couple of times this weekend. They typically do that with timely 30 for 30 type deals. Um, so it's just an amazing story and it's just brilliant, brilliant strategy by some basketball loving guys. Uh, I was just reading uh, Ozzy Silna's obituary in the New York Times and he just he loved basketball from a young age. He was obsessed with it. Um, the reason they bought the St. Louis Spirits as opposed to another team was because Bob Pettit, who was playing for them, was Ozzy Silna's uh, or one of the Silna brothers' favorite players. Um, it's just a cool story. And uh, the St. Louis Spirits, by the way, were Bob Costas got his start as a professional broadcaster. And the story of Bob and how he got that job is really interesting. It's covered in the documentary. Um, but in perpetuity, magical words when getting paid. And that uh, gets remembered today. That story gets circulated today. Uh, and I thought it'd be fun to share here at the end of the Hoffman Show for uh, Ozzy Silna, who died cancer of 83, or at 83 years old. So rest in peace and uh, prayers to the Silna family. And congrats on your $800 million. Two more shows next week, and then we'll see what we can do be on the road for the week after that, actually leaving on Friday, some fun times in New Orleans. So at the very least, if there are no shows next week, uh, or the week after, I should say, as I'm traveling and on vacation, we'll have some good story time on the back end, but I'll see if I can uh, I can take the microphone with me, and well, we might not be able to do any guests uh, because I don't have the full setup. At the very least, I can sit down with my computer or my microphone and do some fun stuff on the world of sports. Again, the website launching in the next couple of days, hoffmanshow.com. Uh, this is The Hoffman Show. Thanks to Damon Amendolara. Thanks to Anthony Galizia. Thank you to you for listening. Goodbye. 